Many hands make slight work, and this is a big job producing this podcast, but I've got help, and the Vancouver Island Works Project has been providing a great deal of help by creating for me a premium website, biwproject.com, for a premium website for yourself. Don't go to just Wix or something like that where you bang it together. Everybody thinks they can do a DIY website, and yeah, you can, but it's going to be missing so much stuff. If you want a K car, go get a K car. If you want a Lamborghini, you go to viwproject.com. Thank you, Manny Mandruziak, who I served with, who made this possible. Thank you for your support of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast, by providing us with a beautiful premium website. That website is operationtraumarecovery.org. OperationTraumaRecovery.org is the website that they made for us. And VIWProject.com is where you go to get one for yourself. Victor India Whiskey Project.com. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear. In three, two, one. Jody Salway, welcome to Operation Tango Romeo. Ah, thank you for having me. I'm glad that you made the time. Now, I was hoping that we could start off by telling me all about the speaking gigs that you've been doing or have done in the past about PTSD. Well, it actually started by by fluke. I was finishing up my master's degree at the University of Regina, and the CEO for an IBM company was presenting on data analytics and predictive algorithms. And one of the things that they said that the university was looking at doing was creating a predictive algorithm to detect the stressors of PTSD and get ahead of it. So before the actual PTSD or OSI sets in. So at the end of the class, I kind of took them aside and I had a service dog. So I told him my background and why I had a service dog. And he thought it would be a good idea for me to maybe come and consult for them because they were doing a great big project with uh, the National Police, uh, the university, and IBM. And he says, what I need you to do is provide expertise. They're going to ask you questions like, will this work? What can we use, what can we use with this? What will complement it? He says, so I need you to become an expert in it, not just the lived experience, but I need you to understand every piece of technology that we can apply to making an improvement in first responders and veterans' lives in regards to PTSD. Um, so my first speaking engagement was talking to all the stakeholders, and they come from a whole wide spectrum of um, academic background, government, uh, small businesses for this program. So shortly after that, I started having uh, the word get out that I was doing talks around uh, PTSD, the effects it has on our first responder community, the suicide rate. But I was also talking about post-traumatic growth. Um, 
one of the things I found out quite quickly, and it was kind of heartbreaking, I never charged for any of my speaking engagements at all. I had quite a few times where they're like, hey, we want to, we've got funding, we can pay you like a thousand bucks to come in and talk. And I said, you know what, it would be better if you just maybe donated it to the Legion or donate to like one of the first responder groups dealing with an OSI. Right. I'd much rather see that. I was quite naive in the sense that I thought every time I spoke to like several hundred people at one time, that I was the catalyst that was going to catapult them into taking action. I, I was, uh, I found out shortly after that, that I was mostly entertainment. They wanted someone to come in and talk about how horrible PTSD was for me and how I got through it and how it was such a happy ending. I don't know if it's ever really a happy ending, but this is what they wanted. <laughs> they, that was the expectation. Um, the CEO actually from ISM took me aside and says, Hey, listen, when you're doing these speaking engagement, cause they were reaching out to the organization, asking me to come up on these days and stuff like that. He says, you really have to put them into an, a, a group very quickly. He says, when you speak to these guys, are they going to take action immediately with what you say? He says, or are you entertainment? And I'm like, that's when I had that aha moment that I see a lot of people out there talking about how horrible PTSD is. And I see a lot of them talking about how they've turned their lives around and done wonderful things. Yet the bar hasn't moved. Yeah, There's still a lot of organizations paying lip service to an OSI or PTSD or bullying in the workplace or toxic cultures. So that's sort of how I fell into it. I never planned to do any of the public speaking and I don't actually do as much as I used to. I do a lot of interviews now. It's much easier. So tell me more about this uh, ISM. Like, why, mm -hmm. like, who are they and why did they want to do a study with you? Like, what is, what, what's their mandate? So ISM is an IBM company. Uh, they mostly deal in data analytics and um, software as a service type of things. They had started a consulting group that was looking at taking and restructuring all of the data from um, farming, from mental health, from uh, policing, all sorts of areas, and providing value back to these organizations. The University of Regina and, and Dr. Nick Carlton had just received, I think it was like a $10 million grant to do a study with the RCMP. And they say, we kind of need someone that's going to work between us so we can have like a translator, but they also want to know, like, if we put biometric wear on our police officers and we use the um, the data that comes off it, I got to be very careful about what I say because the, the study is still ongoing and I don't want to do anything to jinx it for these guys. Okay. Um, they would ask me questions like, do you think they'll wear it? It was essentially um, like a really tight-fitting shirt with all of these little feeds on it and a little battery, and they download it every night. Um, I said, I think it will, but I said, one of the things you've got to be cognitive of is that technology is going to leapfrog this quite quickly. What's your plan to get in front of that? Well, there was no plan. They're doing a longitudinal study, so it all has to be the same all the way through. Um, the relationship dissolved between ISM and the university quite quickly. I'm not sure why. It was very sudden. Uh, the CEO was asked to step down. 
and the whole consulting group was let go. Uh, this is kind of why I had that moment of clarity when I realized that when you're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into research, and now you have people who are looking at getting in front of it, what's going to happen to those research dollars for mental health if we find a way to make it better? It's much like the argument with the reason we don't cure people is because there's more money in, in putting pills in them. Right. Um, <clears throat> so that was unfortunate. I learned a lot of cool things working for a company like IBM. What they tend to do is they like to have the smartest people working for them. And so I was able to access like everything that they had worked on. I was able to leverage the IBM name to get conversations with people all over the world to say like, what are you guys doing that, that makes things better? Whether it's technology, whether it's like policy change, whether it's lifestyle modification, what are you guys doing? And I found out so many cool things where I'm like, why are we not using this? For example, Dr. Charles Mamar in the States, he is using emotional artificial intelligence. And what that does is you can have a conversation like you and I right now, but the uh, emotion AI is running in the background. And what he has discovered is initially the, the emotional AI was designed and it's kind of silly. It's one of those innovative things that happens and then you get something else out of it. They wanted to know by the sound of people's voices, whether they enjoyed a product or riding in a certain model of car. But they found out quite quickly that they could use this emotion AI to detect eating disorders, Parkinson's and PTSD, just from the sound of their voices. I'm like, why are we not utilizing this and putting this technology in with like all of our dispatchers? These guys communicate with these guys on a daily basis. Let it get a baseline. Let it start to build an algorithm to predict PTSD from the sound of the police officer's voice. Run it on an app on your phone so that your phone yes. can tell you your stress levels. I trialed it on my phone. It is incredible. And that was just the one that the light version and it was entertainment. Right. Uh, Beyond Verbal is the company, I think it's out of Israel or Germany. I can't remember. I talked to so many of them. We're doing very similar things. Um, but I'm just sitting back and I'm like, how much of a game changer would this be? If you could detect the onset of PTSD just from somebody talking to their dispatcher, it's not intrusive. It's just running silently in the background. I think where they had a hiccup with it is they thought, well, does this breach privacy for these guys if we say, hey, by the way, the system's red flagged you for PTSD. Well, not so, if you get uh, consent ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Seems like right, a simple but workaround. Always, but everybody's always got an answer for why we shouldn't do it. Hmm. Um, kind of why I, there's oh. the same reason there's no cure for cancer. There's no money yeah, in the cure. Right? Not at all. Um, one of the other things that I discovered too was I had met a, um, she was doing her master's in public policy. She just graduated. Jen Schrenard, she was from Saskatoon. Jen and I ran a peer support group for first responders, anybody basically that had any kind of trauma that led to an OSI or PTSD. And through our conversation, she says, you know, look at the suicide rate we have here in Canada and in the States with our population of veterans and first responders. She says, Australia has nothing even close to it. And she says, I wrote my whole thesis paper on it. 
So we started having a conversation with Australia. We get 85 roughly suicides per year, and that's just with the first responders. They had 85 suicides in Australia in 10 years. And I said, there's something to be said there. So I reached out to him. I said, what are you guys doing that we're not doing? And it was, he says, it's simple. We create this program, and it's evidence-based. We put a lot of research into it, and it's called Priority One. And the workbook with it is called Silver Lining. And he says, we've changed the narrative from you will be exposed to trauma and you'll get PTSD and life won't be the same. And that's the narrative we have here. He says, we've changed that. We've changed the narrative from you will be exposed to trauma. It will change you. However, here's what will make you better. Um, they do 12 weeks of um, pre-training before their first day in class. And what they're looking for is every week you, you go in and you talk with a counselor or a psychologist. And you're journaling everything that you've done that uh, week. And it's all prompted. They're saying, think of a time that you've had good stress, like doing an exam in university. Might not seem good at the time, but what was the outcome? They're looking for pre-existing trauma, which we know that a lot of our first responders and our military personnel come in with. At least 50 to 80% of them do. Yeah, absolutely. That's why they ch- and it and makes that's you why so much more these. vulnerable to uh, PTSD because your, oh. your cup was already seven-eighths full. That's right. Or three quarters. So we, so we know this and they know this. So they said, this is what we're sort of aiming for is what if we can get them talking about their pre-existing trauma? We're not looking at curing it, but we want to get them talking about it before their first day on the job. So what they do is they pull from the post-traumatic growth inventory. And this is how is the trauma going to change the way that you look at your life? How is it going to change in the way that you pick your friends? Things like that. So um, they literally sent me everything that they had to run this course here in Canada. So I've been slowly trying to translate it over so we can use it for our first responder community here. And that's only because of my proximity to the research guys. And the paramedics college is so close. I would like to have it for veterans or military personnel coming into basic training. I just don't think they're receptive to the idea. It's just more money, right? You know, uh, a lot of times these uh, discussions, these interviews start off with uh, talking about service and all that. And I'm mm-hmm. going to do that now at this point. Uh, if, okay. you, if you could share with us um, your service history, roughly, you know, mm-hmm. not, not every course you ever took, just uh, your time with the Patricias in the Navy and yeah. when you first realized you were injured, where that that happened and how that affected you? Uh, yeah, I joined post 9-11. I remember watching those planes crash into the tower and I just was like spurred, spurred to want to do something about that. I uh, joined in 2004 and I was with uh, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry 1st Battalion out of CFB Edmonton for... About four years and then um, did a t- tour in 2006 to Kandahar, Afghanistan. It was a uh, uh, test force Orion. And uh, we took a pretty heavy death toll on that tour. I believe it was over 15 uh, guys on that tour that uh, lost their life. 
And I was also part of a friendly fire incident that injured my brain and my neck and my back and so on and, and my lungs. I thought uh, I want to continue with my military career. So I thought I'm going to put in an occupational transfer. I want to go to the Navy and learn a trade, maybe spend the next couple of years doing things that aren't so hard on the body. Um, but I found out quite quickly that um, I wasn't about to get any kind of mental break there. It was just a different culture. So by 2012, I was really starting to see a lot of the symptoms of PTSD in my behavior, uh, drinking a lot more. Um, so having a conversation with my wife, I said, let's, I'm going to get out of this situation and I'm going to get a regular civilian job. We're going to move to wherever there's employment. We ended up in Saskatchewan, cheap housing, a lot, the oil industry was booming around this time. Uh, so we bought a little farm out in the middle of nowhere for about 200 grand, 30 acres. We put animals out there. Um, this is when I started to get onto my recovery plan. It was sketchy at best because I just didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't really ready to say I'm not myself today. Uh, so I tried to actually do mitigate a lot of the PTSD symptoms through beekeeping. Beekeeping. Interesting. Yes. So I had five hives and bees are quite uh, in tune with your stress levels. If you open that hive and you're stressed out or you're worked up, all the chemicals that are coming off your body, man, they'll pick it up as if you're a, a predator threatening their hive. Wow. And they'll mess up your day. But near the end, I was able to get myself, like, just do a self-check. And I could literally go out in shorts and T-shirt and I could lift the hive, lid off the hive, and I could lift out frames without the bees being disturbed. So that was one way that I kind of got uh, my emotions in check. Um, but with a brain injury and with PTSD, it, it's got to be more than that. That wasn't the solution for, that wasn't the be all end all. Um, I think it took me until 2015 to finally talk to a psychologist. And I went through three psychologists before I found one that would actually work with me properly. The first two said, oh, we spent a lot of time with police officers and stuff like that. So we are more than geared up to help you. And I found out quite quickly that they would much rather treat me for alcoholism. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was drinking a while back, but I hadn't drank in like half a decade. So I think we can fast forward into something else. But I felt like they were just kind of pushing it to the side. They would much rather find things that made them feel more comfortable to treat. Well, and it, to hear me talk and about it's so combat. backwards, too, because uh, uh, alcoholism is the symptom, not the mm -hmm. cause. The right. cause is the trauma, and it's the trauma that causes the, the, um, the addictions. Right, and I couldn't get them to engage in a conversation with me. Um, I had a hiccup in my recovery plan in the sense that I finally got a guy that would sign off on back paperwork. Um, he would actually get the conversation going around like trauma, what's working, what's not working. However, one day I walk into his office and I hadn't been there for a couple of weeks or probably a few months at this point. And that's just because it was 80 kilometers out of town. Um, I sat down with this guy face to face after seeing him for two years and he goes, okay, what brings you in here today? And I go, like, why haven't I been here for a while? Why am I showing up today? Is that what you're asking? He goes, no, who are you and how can I help you? He had literally gotten to a certain age where 
he had forgotten who I was. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And I just spiraled. I thought this is the one person who's supposed to be on top of all this and help me out. And he is completely pulled a 180. And I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, I took a lot of time to myself to figure out, okay, if, if the people who are supposed to be helping me aren't going to help me, I, I needed to get on this myself. And I, uh, I started to notice that my brain was really overactive emotionally, but I also had this insane, like, like a small child type curiosity. And I said, you know, maybe I need to exercise this brain injury much like I would a physical injury. I haven't done anything with my brain. Um, and that's when I spoke to VAC about doing the Volk Rehab Program. I said, hey, I think I really need to uh, rethink my position here. Workout here sucks. I think I'd like to go back to school and uh, get an education and try something different and jumpstart my career. And so they said to me, find something that's two years or less and we'll fund it. So I'm like, okay. I went and looked out there and I thought to myself, you know, I, I spent a few years with these psychologists saying with a brain injury and with PTSD, there's no way to know what the damage was done from the explosion. Um, you'll probably be doing jobs that are very, like, not academic. And it, it kind of chewed at me a little bit because I'm thinking, are you saying that I lost IQ points in this friendly fire incident? Like, it really felt like that's what I was hearing. So I said, you know, what? I'm going to show you. So I said, what are the toughest two-year programs that the university has? And she says, well, an MBA program is definitely one of the tougher ones we have, unless you want to go into, like, engineering or, or science. I said, oh, I don't have the math skills to get into something like that. How much is the MBA program, and how fast can I get into it? She says, show up tomorrow, write the entrance exam, and we can go from there. So I went back to VAC. I said, hey, I wrote the entrance exam. Uh, they gave me an acceptance letter. These are all the things you asked for. And I think VAC sort of dug their heels and they're like, oh, you know, I thought you would go and find like an office admin for two years type of diploma. I don't think they were prepared to pay $66,000 for an education. But I had a really switched on worker. She'd been there for 30 years. Uh, amazing. I know we hear a lot of bad things about VAC, but there are some really good people there. There really are. And she says, you know what? Yeah, and she says, you know what? I'm going to support this, and I'm going to push back and make this happen. I think you can do it. And I'm like, all right on. So it happened. I went into the MBA program, and I struggled. I struggled really bad. And that was because uh, I didn't have an undergrad degree to back it up. I only had my military time that they credited as the equivalent of a degree. Oh, okay. Um, so I had some grade 12 behind me. Wasn't a good student there. Uh, quite quickly, I realized I can use this to my advantage. I know I'm going to struggle, but I'm not going to. It's not going to be a cakewalk. So I just worked my ass off to pass. I got through it ultimately um, with B's. I never got A's. I was hoping for A's, but you know, beggars can't be choosers. Um, hey, and then, C's, uh, C's get degrees, Jody. That's right. That's right. Uh, not in this program. You need seventy percent to pass a program like this. <laughs> that's what I thought. Too. Okay, as as I get bees, bees get golden, degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no, no. This is a graduate course. If you don't get 70 or higher, you're out of the program. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, and I think that's just kind of when things came full circle as I was working with the peer support group. 
um, ISM had hired me on for a short-term project. And then we here we are kind of are today. Um, I just volunteer as the executive director for the Legion here in Regina. Um, and I'm just putting resumes out. COVID got a lot of people laid off, so a lot of competition out there. You know? now you've got a lot of involvement with service dogs. And there's some... I do. Uh, Still some argument out there and some confusion about service dogs. What's the purpose of them? What's the efficacy of them? Mm-hmm. And I was hoping you could uh, tell me a bit about that. Oh, for sure. So I got Clover just as I was starting the MBA program. Um, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. Um, Clover is a almost four-year-old English Mastiff. And when I discovered that I was needing a service dog was actually when I was getting a, um, a grant. It was the grant for being wounded in action, essentially. And one of the spouses was there because she was going back to university on this grant. And Joe Rustenberg was a buddy of mine, and he had a service dog there with him. We also served in Afghanistan at the same time. It was just like one of those, I can't believe our paths have completely crossed at something like this. And his service dog started indicating on me. The reason for it is, and this is why the dogs are like completely uh, valuable, is they can smell a tablespoon of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So whenever there's any chemical change to your body due to stress, they're trained to pick it up and they're trained to engage with you. Because we know that petting dogs, even for 15 or 20 minutes, creates a different chemical that balances out or reduces the cortisol that's already in your system. The other thing it does that a lot of people kind of overlook is it's not just about the tasks that these dogs do. For example, Clover does nighttime terror interruptions. I was having horrendously bad dreams, only sleeping for about four hours a night. Um, So she would interrupt that dream before it would get bad, just from the chemical change. It's that partnership, though. It's that fire team partner mentality that we have in the military where you look after me and I will look after you and you've got my back and I've got yours. And that's the value that she really brings to the table is I take care of her and she takes care of me. And she's always got your back. She's always got my back. And it was a lifestyle modification, but it was kind of I was training bad habits for something good. Um, I've helped pair probably about 30 service dogs in Canada now. Um, it's hugely rewarding. I like to speak, I like to hear back from people who've had them for over a year and they're like, hey man, I got like this new job or I'm back in school or my relationship is in really good shape. And it's, most of this is from the dogs. Um, one of the other things is I became quite socially awkward for whatever reason, I don't know. It was definitely something to do with the PTSD. Right. I couldn't, hold a conversation with anybody and so what happens with the dogs is they become they become what i refer to as social lubricant i found a lot of the interactions with people very very abrasive and so instead of them going hey how was your day and i'm like whoa whoa what about my day why do you want to know like what's with all the questions i would just go like right into like fight or flight everything was perceived as an attack yes so with the service dog, they go, oh, that's such a beautiful dog. The conversation is not about me anymore. It's about the dog. So we can have a few questions about the dog. And then gently we can get in the conversation about other things. 
So this was something I found like really helpful. Um, and having a dog everywhere you go is really cool. It is really cool. Now there's yeah. been a lot of, uh, stories that I see on Facebook from veterans using service dogs and other people using service dogs mm-hmm. where, um, there's stories where the dogs aren't allowed into this restaurant or into that. Yeah. Now, has that been changing over the last five years? Is it getting better where, where people are showing more respect and um, uh, not blocking access to, to service dogs? And what's the law um, regarding that? So Alberta has legislation around that. Um, they actually have a service dog act. These dogs are a little bit more protected in Alberta. The standards are quite a bit higher. Um, we only have uh, the human rights to fall back on here. There's no legislation. I'm actually working with the city of Regina right now to try to get a regional standard um, and some policy built up to protect these dogs and the handlers. And it's mostly for these two reasons right here. A lot of fake service dogs, people buy this crap online. They go into a restaurant, their dogs take a crap all over the place or eat food off of the table. And then someone like me comes in with like high anxiety, like just in the red all the time. And all of a sudden the owner comes up, goes, no, 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 we're not going through this again. Get your damn dog out of here. And then I go home and I'm like, I just don't have what it takes to go back out for like maybe a week or two. And there's people out there a lot worse. Um, The other one too is with the fake service dogs is we've had two of our dogs attacked by fake service dogs. And we had to pull both those dogs from service. I can't even stress enough how much damage you've just done to an individual's uh, an individual recovery plan when you take a major tool away from him like that. Um, and I feel like we need to start educating the public. They don't just use these dogs for seeing or for people who are have uh, hearing problems. This is seizure detection, diabetic detection. Uh, this is PTSD. This is mobility. There's a wide spectrum of uses for these dogs now. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, too, is you're not always going to see the injury. So we need to start having conversations around what all these different dogs do and why they're valuable. The, the injury can be invisible, but we're not. Uh, absolutely. Now, Jody, what does a service officer do at the Legion? You've been doing that for a while. What's the what's the point of a service officer, and what can you expect from one? So I'll tell you some of the things I've done as a service officer. It might look different depending on where you live, um, and it depends on the level of training that's been provided for some of these service officers. Um. Let's say, for example, a veteran or an RCMP member approaches me. They're like, I've had a physical injury or psychological injury. I want to apply for a VAC pension. Well, we actually work with VAC to get trained on how to fill out these applications, how to make sure all the right information gets in there. Um, And it's about streamlining it. We don't want to leave anything uh, to chance. For example, when I filled out my paperwork for PTSD, I was in such a bad place. I think I wrote in there as my quality of life. I'm like, the anxiety is bad. It's like being in a burning building. And I left it at that. I just didn't have the mental capacity to articulate on paper what I was experiencing. Had I been more 
um, not coached, but had someone walk me through it and ask me the right questions as I was filling it out. I don't think I would have had much, it took me like three years to get back to finally go, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. It's extremely um, common, and it's certainly with myself as well, that the capacity to do paperwork and logistical things is yeah. severely reduced, and that's a very, very common symptom. And yet here's VAC, where even a completely healthy person would be naturally overwhelmed by the maze, the labyrinth, and the, and the sheer volume of paperwork that has to be filled out. It's um, And there's a lot of untreated PTSD because of that. That's right. So that's the other thing that the Legion does provide. Um, there is a lead and lag time on these claims. And before some of these guys can get benefits, some of them are waiting up to 54 weeks. A lot can happen in 54 weeks with these guys. So we'll sponsor you financially you can get in to see if you can get an appointment with a psychologist we'll pay for it um the other thing that i do too is part of a lifestyle modification i've got um a pilot project going right now and the premise behind it is get you off the couch so i pay for the gym memberships i pay for the nutritional uh, side of things and in some cases we'll even provide fitness equipment for the house when it's available and the idea here is i get you off the couch get you uh, gaining a higher level of self-efficacy that comes with fitness. I give you this social prescription, talking to other people in the gym, because I do them in cohorts of four or five. I'm like, well, this is your cohort. Let's see who can lose the most weight. Let's see who can be the fastest runner. And I've got a mix of veterans and RCMP working right now. Oh, that's fantastic. Two of them. It, it's been very successful. We had two guys lose over 25 pounds. Well, it's the social aspect as well. Uh, PTSD disconnects yes. you from everybody. And so having a, um, a sense of connection with people and a sense of mission, uh, that's, that's incredibly helpful. Oh, hands down. I think that's the whole part of the equation that we sort of overlook. That's the value in peer support. And that's really what it is. It's just peer support without the stereotype of being in an old church with a big silver coffee maker and two guys smoking cigarettes outside. Jody, all sitting in a big chair, you know, <laughs> circle. In your experience, and we'll probably close off with this, what are some of yeah. the uh, top three or just top do's and the top don'ts of peer support from your experience? I would say the top don't. Don't ever work by yourself. Don't ever facilitate by yourself. Um, Work with somebody else. And the reason being is if you're working in a group of 10 or 12, much like we were at this peer support group, and somebody says something that triggers somebody else, at least you can separate them from the group if need be, if they need that time to adjust. But you don't lose that continuity in the group. Mm. Um, the other big don't is don't discuss trauma. Don't discuss what happened to you. It's, it's, there's no value in it. We would call we it. We already know no, bad no, things no, happen to us. No war porn. No, exactly. Um, so that's one of our big rules is we don't discuss what happened. We discuss what's successful. We discuss like what growth you've seen from it. Um, and you know what? We get in there and we discuss like what doctors in town work, which ones do not, where there's flaws in the system and where there's successful things in the system. Um, 
and make sure that you obviously, and this is like the big obvious, that you protect people's um, privacy and their um, don't do anything that may or may not uh, embarrass them. For example, I had one person run into me at Walmart and said, oh, this is so-and-so from my PTSD peer support group. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, how are you? And I took it very cool. And I said, you know, when I saw him the next time, I said, I'm cool with it because people see me uh, doing stuff for the news and, and public speaking and stuff like that. There's no big secret that I've got PTSD. I don't even try to hide it anymore. However, um, you could run into somebody who's just not at that stage to say, like, I have it. So maybe we have a policy where we say, hey, this is a colleague of mine. We know each other through mutual friends. Tell so me, I think oh, the, uh, there's a perfect segue. The shirt that I'm wearing right now, I just got in mm -hmm. the mail yesterday. It's my Tango Romeo shirt. And on the top, it says recover out loud. And that's, I mean, you've been using that as a tagline. So I just love it. Uh, oh. Tell me about the importance of recovering out loud for those that are ready to do so. Why it's important to recover out loud. And I found this with almost every speaking engagement I've ever done. And I think even when this airs, you'll see there will be someone that will reach out to you or they'll reach out to me. The value is somebody else needs to hear that they're not alone. And that's why it's super, super important for them to know, like you're not, your experiences aren't unique to you. There's a lot of people out there drinking too much, probably smoking way too much pot, probably fighting way too much with their spouse, but they need to hear that that's not unique to them. We need to start to normalize in the sense that like, this is what happens when we can get through this. And that is a big, big reason that I do this. That's why I recover out loud and extremely mm -hmm. out loud got a podcast uh, yeah. that's heard in over 30 countries around the world. So that's out loud. But, it's, but you're exactly right. Uh, I have private messages usually. Um, mm -hmm. and occasionally they're public uh, messages saying that the sense of connection and the relatability of Operation Tango Romeo has been a godsend for them. I've had people use terms like, this saved my life, or this has really helped, or thank you so much. But that's anytime you share your story, whether it's one-on-one -on -one and privately, if you share your story and truly listen to other people's stories, um, like truly listen, not just hear it, um, yeah. that is so helpful. That sense of I'm not alone is is massive. And Jody, thank you for all the work that you are doing in this field. You are recovering out loud, very out loud, and you are helping a lot of people because of it. Your courage and your dedication to the, to the veteran first responder community is significant. And whether you know it directly or not, you have saved lives. And thank you for the, for the work that you do. Well, you know, it's my pleasure. I'm just happy that if I can help one person, or one person hears the sound of my voice or the sound of your voice. And they're like, if those guys can do it, so can I. And an easy way to recover out loud is by sharing this podcast. Share, share like the sugar bear, because sharing is caring. Jody Selway, thank Absolutely. you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. And please stay on the line. Okay. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast. <laughs> At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain. 
by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear.